Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. This is Early Stuart England, Episode 55, The Force Loan. We ended last episode with Charles receiving the news of the Protestant defeat at the Battle of Luther and resolving to get England back in the war game by any means necessary. This episode focuses on the revenue-raising project that he and his Privy Council organized and implemented in the following months. But of course, Charles had not been just twiddling his thumbs for the three months between the dissolving of Parliament in mid-June and hearing the news of Luther in mid-September 1626. The defeat fueled the administration to finalize an unprecedented revenue-raising strategy, but the financial ideas had been germinating all summer. So we'll have to wind back the clock a bit to the June dissolution. We've talked already about the religious and diplomatic ramifications of the 1626 dissolution, but the political consequences were of course just as momentous. Three are worth laying out at the outset. The first, and most obvious, is that the Crown still needed money. If it wasn't going to come from Parliament, where would it come from? This is the great problem of this episode, so we'll set that aside for now. We've got half an hour to solve that one. Secondly, the near-miss in Parliament shifted Buckingham's approach to politics. For most of his political career, Buckingham had overseen a diverse patronage network. As we've seen, up until the York House Conference, he had friends in both the anti-Calvinist and Puritan camps. He had a history of working with both constitutional parliamentarian diehards like Edward Cook and any number of loyal defenders of the royal prerogative. In part, this was a necessity. So long as Buckingham's friendship was the only path to royal favor, he was going to attract a diverse bunch. But it also reflected Buckingham's confidence. He had no need to jealously crush voices that disagreed with him on this or that issue. Better to enjoy the flexibility his vast network of friends provided. That all began to change in 1626. We've already seen it happen in church politics, where Buckingham narrowly defined his parameters at York House. If you wanted to be part of the Villiers Club, you now had to be an anti-Calvinist. In the aftermath of the 1626 Parliament, he applied this approach to secular politics. Previously magnanimous in victory, Buckingham now vindictively sought out and punished his enemies. When I originally covered the dissolution of Parliament, I mentioned that the leaders of the attacks on Buckingham, like John Elliot and Dudley Diggs, were purged as justices of the peace. Many others were as well, replaced by men personally loyal to Buckingham. In this, Buckingham revealed his insecurity. Charles had been able to protect him, but he recognized that a significant portion of the political community was gunning for him. In addition to tightening up his circle of trusted allies, this also narrowed Buckingham's ideological options. The first task of any future Parliament would be to pick up where they left off and continue impeachment proceedings against Buckingham. Therefore, in the interest of self-preservation, Buckingham was now ideologically opposed to Parliaments. And if you wanted to be his political ally, you had better be opposed to them too. 
Throughout the coming months, Buckingham publicly distanced himself from any denunciation of Parliament, but behind the scenes, his allies worked to undermine the institution. His new alliance with anti-Calvinists proved particularly effective, as William Laud became the most vocal opponent of Parliament and deployed theological justifications for extra-parliamentary taxation. The third outcome of the 1626 dissolution was the emergence of an informal group on the Privy Council, which historians have referred to as the Moderates. These were men that held the majority view of political society, that Parliament was a necessary element of the political world that ensured harmony between king and subject. But they were political realists, who understood that, for the time being, Parliament was not fulfilling that harmonious function. Radical elements had hijacked the most recent session, and perhaps Charles himself had not responded constructively to events. Assigning blame was not important at this point, though. The overriding goal of the moderates was to guide Charles through this crisis and ensure that no lasting damage was done to the relationship between king and subject. Eventually, Charles would call another parliament, and they needed to make sure it went smoothly. As an aside, it's important to note that, roughly speaking, Charles held a similar view. He, too, saw Parliament as a key part of the kingdom's traditional constitution, and his long-term goal was a return to Parliament. The difference was that Charles demanded a return on his terms. Parliament had broken the norms of the constitution, not him. From his perspective, Parliament had to be cowed before it could play a role in politics again. The moderates saw this as dangerously provocative, and instead banked on time healing all wounds and allowing heads to cool. We've already met most of the key men in this moderate faction of the Privy Council. For instance, the Earl of Pembroke, who himself bore some responsibility for the breakdown of Parliament's relationship with the King. Recognizing now that Charles was willing to protect Buckingham at all costs, Pembroke resigned himself to the fact that a Parliament was not in the foreseeable future, and devoted himself to reining in any extra-parliamentary new councils. The Earl of Holland, a rising player in our narrative, held a similar view. As did John Cook, Buckingham's longtime naval advisor now serving as Secretary of State. A final character, who I don't believe we've met, was Henry Montagu, Earl of Manchester. We have met his brother, though, Edward Montagu. He featured prominently as the Northamptonshire magnate who put down the Midlands Revolt in 1607. Manchester had previously served as Chief Justice of the King's Bench and was now Lord President of the Privy Council. In the coming months, these men worked hard to ensure that the new councils Charles sought to implement were temporary measures. Ideally, they would have urged Charles to convene a new parliament and come to some kind of settlement with his subjects, but the king had made it clear parliament was out of the question for the time being. Confronted with this reality, they sought to limit the damage caused by this hiatus between parliaments. They supported emergency measures to raise money without parliament, after all, England was still at war and had to defend itself, but they resisted any attempts to make these long-term alternatives to Parliament. This was to be a temporary aberration from the constitutional norm, not the establishment of a new system. The scene was set for a running battle within the administration between Buckingham loyalists and the moderates over how to fund the war effort. The initial ideas for raising money bandied about in June and July were not especially promising. Rumors that Charles had consulted with his wife's advisors on how the kings of France had been able to neuter their representative institutions spread panic within the political elite, but there was no comprehensive strategy in the offing. Edwin Sandus, one of the few Patriot Coalition men to stay loyal to Buckingham after all this time, proposed a radical solution. 
Parliament had been in the process of passing a bill to raise £300,000, conditional on the conclusion of Buckingham's impeachment trial. Obviously, that bill had not been passed, but the infrastructure for its collection was all there. Could Charles just call on the local men responsible for parliamentary collections to gather the money as if it had been approved? After all, Parliament had agreed in principle that Charles needed the money for the war. The sixty-something Sandus offered a sad contrast to the bellicose version of himself who had defended the ancient privileges of Parliament in direct opposition to King James back in the Parliament of 1604. He had finally found a secure position as a loyal foot soldier in Buckingham's political network at the cost of his principles. Sandus's proposal, of course, alarmed the moderates. Such a flagrant violation of Parliament's authority would seriously undermine the legitimacy of the institution. Sidestepping constitutional niceties in a crisis was one thing, but flat-out trampling Parliament's rights was quite another. Luckily, the moderates had practical arguments to deploy as well. The volunteer bureaucracy of the state meant that the collection of parliamentary subsidies was organized and carried out by local elites. Without their cooperation, which was highly unlikely in this case, it wasn't clear how such an order by the Crown would be enforced. The Council set aside Sandus's radical notion and turned to more realistic expedients. The Council considered several other projects which were more politically and logistically feasible, though much less ambitious. One proposal built on the traditional obligation of coastal towns to provide the Crown with ships and sailors in times of crisis. The Elizabethan Earl of Essex had used this expedient to assemble the fleet he used to raid Cadiz in 1596. But while the legal precedent passed muster with the wary moderates, the reality on the ground limited this project's usefulness. The more recent raids on Cadiz in 1625 had already soaked up much of the manpower and naval assets of England's coastal communities, and persistent Dunkirk raiding had not allowed for the replenishment of local reserves. The council played with the idea of expanding the call to arms by getting coastal counties to pitch in and help the towns, but that met with resistance. The council shelved the idea for now, but it would return in a more grandiose form down the road. Other ideas took their cue from the peacetime reforms of James's reign. The council suggested that the crown cease payment of all pensions in an effort to conserve money, an unpopular measure Lionel Cranfield had championed back when he was Lord Treasurer. Traditional money-raising schemes like a new monopoly on tobacco were also proposed, but like the pension freeze, this was just nibbling around the edges of the problem. Charles wasn't looking to balance the books the way James had been. He needed to replace hundreds of thousands of pounds the Parliament had been offering to pay for a military campaign. In the end, the Council decided to concentrate on a less aggressive version of Sandus's proposal. Parliament's agreement to supply £300,000 indicated that many in the kingdom were willing to support the war effort. A direct appeal to this constituency to voluntarily aid the king in his time of need might just work. In July, the Privy Council approved a benevolence. A benevolence was a long-established, though controversial, instrument to raise money for the crown. Rather than a tax, which would be legally problematic outside of Parliament, a benevolence was a gift that loyal subjects freely gave the monarch in a time of crisis. Since the 13th century, monarchs had periodically put out the call and, with varying degrees of success, had received contributions from the kingdom. Though these contributions were technically uncoerced, the power relationship between crown and subject complicated the matter. The king might say contributions were voluntary, but rejecting a personal request from the monarch carried all sorts of ramifications for your future prospects. You might not face arrest for refusing to contribute, but you may as well be kissing your political career goodbye. 
As a result, over the centuries, several parliaments passed statutes against benevolences. By the time James became King of England, it had been almost 60 years since the last benevolence, called by Henry VIII in the last years of his reign. James reintroduced the instrument and put out the call for money after his failed parliaments of 1614 and 1621. I didn't mention them during the narrative because the returns had been negligible. At most, James raised around £1,000 in total. This time, Charles hoped that things were different. His interpretation of Parliament had been that a small cadre of rabble-rousers had hijacked the House of Commons and that the majority of his subjects still supported him and his war. By appealing directly to them, he felt he had a good chance of securing the money he needed to defend the realm. It's also important to note that Charles placed an emphasis on proceeding in a legal manner. From his point of view, Parliament had abdicated its responsibility as a representative body, but that did not absolve him of his duty to work with his subjects. For Charles, the Privy Council stepped into this role as representative body of the realm. As much as he sympathized with Buckingham, Charles hesitated to act without the consent of the moderates on the Privy Council and actively courted their support. If the benevolence was an early skirmish in the coming battle, it was a victory for the moderates. The notices that went out to the justice of the peace emphasized the voluntary nature of the benevolence and reassured the kingdom that this was not a long-term replacement to parliamentary taxation. Just like James's efforts, this benevolence met with a tepid response. The lack of coercion and the legal ambiguity of the request, anti-benevolent statutes were after all still in the books, encouraged many to refuse. The poor return could also be blamed on the slapdash rollout strategy. The Privy Council gave little direction on how to implement the benevolence. As a result, many justices of the peace received the order to collect and summoned local landowners. With little preparation beforehand, these large gatherings quickly turned into unmanageable sites of resistance. The loudest voices were often those most opposed to the raising of extra-parliamentary revenue, and others were swayed. This process was a learning experience for the Privy Council. If future attempts at collecting money were to be successful, greater thought would have to be put into managing affairs. Attention to detail at the local level was crucial. Before any public announcement was made, likely obstructionists had to be bypassed or marginalized, and influential men informally won over. All of this meant a far more organized and comprehensive approach. The failure of the benevolence also had an impact on Charles. He imagined the request as a test of loyalty. How deep did the opposition to his rule really go? Charles found the answer disheartening. Perhaps it would take even more work than he imagined to bring his intransigent subjects back into line. The immediate response to the failure of the benevolence in July was to swing the momentum on the council towards Buckingham's allies. They had tried the watered-down begging of moderates, and it had failed. The situation now called for a firm hand. In August, the council put together a reworked campaign that reflected the goals of the Buckingham loyalists. First of all, JPs were encouraged to pass along informal threats of legal prosecution for those who refused to pay. And secondly, specific men were targeted. Some of those who had attacked Buckingham in Parliament were required to pay seven or even ten times the amount they would have contributed to a parliamentary subsidy. Buckingham singled out the Earl of Warwick and his network of neighbours and allies in Essex for particularly severe punitive rates. This more muscular, partisan approach yielded no better results. The obvious vindictiveness of the demands ensured that no one saw it as legitimate, and the moderates in the Privy Council provided little institutional support for its implementation. The project was already petering out in the second week of September when the disastrous news from Germany arrived. 
Christian IV, had been routed at Luder. The news, which arrived in London on the 11th of September, radically changed the atmosphere. As we saw last episode, Charles took it as a personal blow. The Privy Council had wasted enough time all summer futzing around with their half-baked projects. Charles needed money for a major military operation next campaigning season. No more messing around. The immediate reaction to this urgency was the assumption that a parliament was in the offing. Charles had tried to raise money without one, but nothing had worked. Now, with his back against the wall, he had no choice but to call a parliament. Anticipating the call, men in Somerset and Cornwall began informally canvassing for votes in the upcoming elections. Meanwhile, in the Privy Council, the moderates began obliquely referring to the possibility of parliament, though they prudently fell short of outright advising Charles to call one. This coyness proved warranted, as Charles responded to one such hint by saying he would not take him for his friend that should advise thereunto. Despite the need for cash, Charles was standing firm on his red line. To even suggest he call a parliament was as good as announcing your opposition to his rule. On the 14th of September, the Privy Council accepted the reality Charles had presented them with. They'd have to revisit the benevolence and make it work this time. It is a testament to the adaptability and energy of the councillors that they succeeded. The revenue-raising campaign they engineered, which came to be known as the Force Loan, allowed Charles to do the unthinkable, fund a major military operation without the aid of Parliament. What makes this success especially impressive is that a significant number of privy councillors, the moderates, had serious reservations about extra-parliamentary taxation. But Charles had deftly maneuvered them into a dilemma. The king framed the forced loan as yet another test of loyalty, but this one came with an alluring prize at the end of it. If his subjects proved they were serious about supporting the war effort, he would be pleased to reward them with a parliament. In other words, the only way for the moderates to win Charles over to parliaments was to successfully raise money without one. With little choice in the matter, Pembroke, Manchester, Cook, and the other moderates latched onto this promise that the forced loan was an emergency measure. It was a dangerous game. If the project proved too successful, Charles might be convinced that he didn't need parliaments after all. Certainly Buckingham's allies were whispering exactly this in the king's ear. Each step of the way, the moderates and Buckingham's friends battled over the meaning and permanence of the forced loan. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This time, the Privy Council carefully managed the rollout. On the 7th of October, a kind of pilot program started. Rather than relying on JPs throughout the kingdom, the Privy Councillors themselves announced the new push for money to groups of men wealthy enough to contribute at Westminster. The greater disparity in social rank between officials and audience yielded better results. What resistance they did encounter, they dealt with swiftly and decisively. A tailor named Prophet Ball interrupted proceedings to denounce the forced loan. But he and twelve others were promptly pressed into military service and shipped to Denmark. With that message sent, the remaining men got on board. Buoyed by the success, the Privy Council spent the rest of October travelling around London, delivering carefully managed performances that on the one hand reassured subjects that this was a one-off emergency measure, and on the other warned that refusers would be dealt with harshly. 
In doing so, the privy councillors developed a program which could then be repeated in the counties. Before the formal announcement, councillors met with the community elites, most likely to support the forced loan. These men would use their personal influence to cajole their neighbours into going along with the plan. Additionally, they could identify possible troublemakers who could be removed before they made a scene. By the end of October, the Privy Council felt they had the system down well enough for it to succeed outside their home turf in London. Whenever possible, individual Privy Councillors or other nationally prominent men would be present to announce the forced loan in the counties, but real follow-through would require cooperation of local elites. But before the forced loan was ready for its nationwide release, it needed one final ingredient to ensure success, formal recognition of its legality. One of the reasons the benevolence had failed was its legal ambiguity. Men felt confident that if they refused to contribute, no charges could be brought against them in court. With the government now using threats and coercion, the legality of the measure was even more dubious. Anyone could see that this was not a gift or a loan, but a tax. Charles hoped that a preemptive statement by the leading judges of the King's Bench and the Court of Common Pleas would close off this avenue of resistance. If the forced loan were deemed legal by the judiciary, then only true believer ideologues would be willing to face a long, losing battle in court over their refusal to pay. Despite this being a constitutional grey area, Charles had reason to be confident that the judges would have his back. Not only had none of the judges publicly refused payment, but most of them had already contributed their allotted amounts, well in advance of expectation. But personal conscience was one thing, legal precedent another. On the 28th of October, the judges announced that they could not confirm the legality of the forced loan. It would require a test case to do that. Charles threatened to sweep their benches, in other words, remove them all from office and replace them with judges who had come to the correct decision. But as this would hardly achieve his goal of legitimizing the forced loan, he did not follow through on the threat. Inspired by the judge's decision, a group of fifteen lords declared their refusal to sign off. The actual text of this declaration does not survive, but their later resistance suggests that the group included the earls of Essex, Warwick, and Arundel, as well as Viscount Say, all men who at one time or another had found themselves in a tussle with Buckingham. If the moderates on the Privy Council were willing to grit their teeth and support the forced loan in the interests of a future parliament, these were the leaders of a more direct resistance to the policy. Their resistance was a blow, not just because they were public figures whose word carried weight, but some of them were also dominant figures in their local regions. Warwick in Essex and Arundel in Norfolk both had the ability to undermine collection efforts and protect refusers. Even if they didn't actively resist, it would be difficult to organize collection efforts without their help. These setbacks paralyzed the Privy Council throughout November. Again, the success or failure of the project swayed the balance of power on the Council. This time, the moderates were the beneficiaries, as it seemed the forced loan had overreached. The deadlock was broken on the 27th of November, when the Privy Council voted not to imprison the resistant lords. Charles had personally sided with Buckingham's crew on making an example of them, but he refused to act without the support of his council, and so he backed down. The moderates retained this momentum through to December, when the Privy Council drafted instructions to county JPs on how to implement the forced loan. In addition to the instructions on managing the rollout and threats of coercion, the moderates included a raft of concessions JPs might use to entice support. The council was willing to promise that a certain amount of money raised would remain in the county for local use, or be used to recoup billeting expenses. 
Billeting was a particularly hated war necessity. Unused to standing armies, England did not have the necessary infrastructure to house the sailors and soldiers Charles had been recruiting for the war effort. As a result, local communities were forced to house and feed these men. The Privy Council now authorized JPs to direct some of the forced loan money towards repaying communities that had been put out. Beginning in December, these instructions began arriving in counties across the kingdom, and widespread collection could begin. The informal nature of early modern administration was on full display. In order to deliver maximum heft, the government sent whatever star power they had available to each county. Any personal connection, however indirect, helped. London-dwelling property holders were sent back to their home counties to press the cause, as were court bigwigs, who had a local son-in-law. The council also reached out to reliable men across the kingdom, compiling lists of which local men should be approached first to develop momentum, and which should be isolated. Strategies of persuasion depended on local context. A coastal town might be promised future naval protection for their fishing boats in order to secure a favorable response. In other places, the Privy Council inserted itself into long-running disputes between town and county. Nascent resistance might be quelled by a promise that the Privy Council would resolve future disputes favorably, or a threat that pending issues may be delayed indefinitely. Historian Richard Cust has described these forced loan negotiations as taking over the sort of negotiation between national and local politics that was normally the province of Parliament. Certainly things went smoother when there was a privy councillor present on the ground, and locals could negotiate with the central government literally face to face. In other instances, the stick proved more effective than the carrot. Charles made a public example of the Earl of Essex, one of the earliest public refusers. The king stripped Essex of his office as Lord Lieutenant of Staffordshire, which he had held since 1612. The loss of his military office was a humiliation for Essex, who considered himself one of the foremost soldiers in the realm. To add insult to injury, Charles publicly called Essex out as a willful young man who desires more his own glory than to do me any acceptable service. Essex added this to the list of humiliations he had received at the hands of the Stuart monarchs. First, Prince Henry had been rumoured to have slept with his wife. Then James contrived to have him declared impotent and his marriage annulled. And finally, Charles had forced him to serve under incompetent men in the war. At this point, being called a willful young man by a king who was nine years younger than himself was just par for the course. As one of the leading men of the kingdom, Essex stood as a useful example of what happened to refusers. This put the gentry class responsible for organizing collections in an awkward position. If they participated in collection, they risked alienating their neighbors. But if they refused to play a leading role, they risked damaging their political careers. Many tried to shy away from making a choice and kept their heads down, contributing money if pressed, but avoiding any public support or opposition. Our old friend Robert Phillips found himself in just such a predicament. You recall that the West Country man built his political career on balancing his local standing with service to the central government. In the parliaments of 1614 and 1621, he emerged as a defender of local interests, which he parlayed into an alliance with Buckingham and the government in the Patriot Coalition of 1624. The local backlash against this drove him to take an oppositional stance in 1625, which led him to be excluded from the parliament of 1626 when he was pricked as a sheriff. After this roller coaster ride, Philip spent the autumn and winter of 1626 trying to rebuild his bridges with the central administration. 
he enlisted the aid of a friend, Nathaniel Tompkins, to discreetly inquire about his prospects for reconciling with Buckingham at court. Tompkins reported back that any future promotion Phillips might want depended entirely on his vigorous support of the forced loan. In the world of patronage politics, nothing else mattered. Now, it might seem strange that Robert Phillips, the well-known troublemaker who had once been arrested and once been barred from sitting in Parliament, was trying to make nice with Buckingham. But it's important to note that we are not dealing with an England divided into separate camps of those who supported the government and those who opposed it. The forced loan played an important role in laying the groundwork for those camps, but it was still only natural that Phillips looked to the court for the advancement of his political career. But the good opinion of his neighbors mattered too, and Phillips balked at the steep price of Buckingham's forgiveness. Publicly supporting and participating in the collection of money would not win him many friends at home. Phillips ended up choosing the middle path and kept his head down. As Tompkins predicted, this did nothing for his career at court, while in the West Country his reputation as a staunch defender of local interests suffered too. Similar tensions plagued Edward Montague in Northamptonshire. This is the second time I've dredged up this old name from a past episode, so by way of a brief refresher, the Montague family dominated the Northamptonshire countryside, and Edward saw himself as rooted in the county. He's the guy that had warned Parliament of the infect enclosure was having on the county's rural communities, and he had played a role in ending the Midlands Revolt of 1607. As the leading man in the county, Montague had received a personal letter from the king requesting his aid in collecting the forced loan. Montague spent weeks agonizing over the dilemma this placed him in. Should he participate in what might well be an illegal invasion of the rights of his friends and neighbors? His whole life he had built his identity around being a leader and protector of these people. On the other hand, a personal entreaty from the king pulled at his ideological heartstrings. What greater duty did he have as a subject than to fulfill the wishes of his monarch? Like Phillips, Montague struggled to walk the line between these two poles. Eventually, he decided to devote his energies to ensuring the forced loan succeeded, but emphasized to his neighbors that it was a temporary emergency measure. In this, he echoed the words of his brother, the Earl of Manchester, and one of the leading moderates on the Privy Council. But the nuance did not save him from grumbling that the great Montagues cared more for the court than their county neighbors. In the end, enough local elites supported the forced loan for collection efforts to gain momentum in most counties by the beginning of 1627. The £300,000 promised by Parliament established the target, and also the method of collection. The subsidy rolls, documents which outlined who owed what when Parliament agreed to pay subsidies to the king, acted as a template. In theory, these divided communities by wealth, with the rich contributing the most, down to artisans and small-time independent farmers paying the least. Below a certain threshold, land holdings worth around one or two pounds a year, or goods valued at two to four pounds, subjects were not expected to contribute. In practice, the subsidy rolls were far from an accurate reflection of wealth. The official records struggled to keep up with the ebb and flow of fortunes on the ground, and local politics exerted its own influence. Certain names might be pushed further down the graduated scale, or struck from the list altogether, if those names had friends in high places. Numerous communities added their own informal practices to collections by pooling resources to cover the obligations of those too poor to pay, or allowing for a rotation of families to pay, rather than placing the entire burden on the one family unlucky enough to have nosed over the exemption line. As a result, collection required more than simply showing up with the official list and demanding payment. 
the gentry who did participate in collection had to do their share of cajoling and compromising. Alternating between the carrot and the stick, they concentrated their efforts where they expected results, and avoided households or communities likely to put up a fight. After all, despite all the big talk coming from the Privy Council, or cooperating JPs, the available options for coercion were limited. Offering or withholding court favor could be an effective way to sway a narrow elite. Certainly men with thoughts of political advancement noted the fate Essex had suffered. But for the broad property-owning population, for whom an offset court was not a plausible life goal, such threats and inducements were not so useful. More direct methods of coercion had their problems too. Some of Buckingham's allies suggested targeted billeting as a way to encourage reluctant communities. The threat of soldiers eating up your wares would do wonders to motivate compliance. But the moderates on the council successfully argued against the use of billeting as a threat. A persuasive threat it may be, but jamming together disgruntled soldiers and angry locals seemed like a recipe for disaster. They were having enough trouble as it was, managing the unruly soldiers and sailors of the kingdom without adding new controversies to the mix. We have already seen one other method of coercion, the Taylor Prophet Ball and his associates that Charles had packed off to fight with the Danes. At least they may have been sent off to Denmark. We don't have evidence that they ever actually went, and in some other cases, such punishments were never carried out. In at least one instance, an army officer was disgusted with the lack of training in his unexpected recruits and sent them back home, complaining that they were more trouble than they were worth. Charles gave such forced recruitments his official blessing, but they appear to have been rarely carried out. But despite the infrequency of their use, threats like impressment or billeting made an impression on popular consciousness and would be remembered. And while we have relatively scant evidence of such punishments being carried out, the threats were often made, both formally and informally. The memory of the forced loan as a violation of individual rights developed a political force in the future. A final method of coercion that would have major consequences down the road was imprisonment. As early modern England did not have much in the way of a national prison infrastructure, this meant packing vocal refusers off to London to answer to the Privy Council. Once they got there, however, the Privy Council faced a dilemma. Ever since the judge's refusal to approve the forced loan back in October, the legality of the measure remained uncertain. If the refusers were charged with a crime, the court may well find the forced loan illegal, and thus legitimize resistance to it. The moderates on the council feared a confirmation of the forced loan as legal just as much. After some initial hiccups, collections were moving relatively smoothly. Here, legal ambiguity worked in the Crown's favour. Aside from a few constitutional scholars, most English subjects saw the forced loan as an unwelcome but necessary emergency measure. The king was fighting a war and needed money from somewhere. This was all irregular and unpleasant, but what choice did anyone have? But if a court ruled that the forced loan was perfectly legal, well, that might change things. Maybe it would turn this from a one-off emergency into a permanent replacement of parliamentary taxation. It would certainly undermine the moderate argument that the king didn't intend to change the entire political structure of the kingdom. Charles formalizing his new councils through the courts, and the backlash that might inspire in the kingdom, was the nightmare the moderates had long feared. Better to leave those ideological questions ambiguous. This posed a practical problem. The Privy Council received a continuous flow of refusers from the counties, but dared not charge them with anything. By February, London's meager holding cells were overflowing with well-to-do gentry. 
Over 100 sat on their hands, waiting out the government. The Privy Council promptly changed tactics. Instead of imprisoning refusers, it demanded that they appear before the Privy Council to explain their resistance, then do so again three or four days later if the Council didn't like their explanation. This put an unwelcome burden on the county gentry, as travel to London, or staying in the city between these Privy Council meetings, could be expensive. This little piece of bureaucratic nuisance did the trick and helped discourage opposition. But those 100-plus gentry already imprisoned remained in London, suspended in carbonite. To release them would be to back down. To charge them would be to court disaster. The stalemate would fester all year until we returned to them in the autumn. If the moderates managed to prevent the Privy Council from making the ideological meaning of the force loan explicit, Buckingham's allies had another avenue at their disposal. Considering the close relationship between Buckingham and the anti-Calvinists, it should be no surprise that this avenue was the Church. From the very beginning, in September 1626, William Laud had taken a lead in justifying the forced loan from the pulpit. He penned a set of instructions for preachers, which was then distributed throughout the kingdom under the auspices of the crown. In them, Laud urged ministers to remind their congregations that Parliament had been guilty of, as he called it, a breach of unity a serious offence in time of war. As a result, Charles, however unwillingly, had been forced to look to other means to finance the defence of the realm. Once the collection campaign hit the counties in December and January, other anti-Calvinists began to make even more strident claims. One of these ministers, Robert Sibthorpe, attracted national attention for his controversial defence of a king's taxation rights. Preaching in his parish church in Northamptonshire, Sibthorpe used the issue of taxation to marry theology and political ideology. The Jesuit error, he said, was to put the church above the king and the pope above the church. The Puritans, on the other hand, made the error of putting the law above the king and the people above the law. The idea that taxation policy could be determined by the representative body of the parliament rather than the king was therefore tantamount to the anarchic heresy of Presbyterianism. Sibthorpe summed up his argument with lines that would gain him later infamy. If a prince impose an immoderate, yea, even an unjust tax, yet the subject may not thereupon withdraw his obedience and duty. Even if the law said Charles could not collect tax without parliament, the honest subject had no recourse but to obey. Buckingham's allies pressed for the national publication and distribution of Sibthorpe's sermon. There was one problem. Although politically marginalized, the Calvinist George Abbott remained Archbishop of Canterbury, which meant he had to sign off on publication licenses. This he staunchly refused to do. Charles responded to this refusal by inviting Sibthorpe to the capital to preach before the court, a clear indication of where the winds were blowing. But in case that message was too subtle, Charles moved against Abbott more directly soon after. The king banished him to his country estate in Kent. Although Abbott remained archbishop, he was suspended from the exercise of his duties, and his responsibilities were taken over by a five-man committee of clerics, led by William Laud. We'll leave the force loan there for now, for reasons that will become clear in a moment. The moderates had won many of the early skirmishes, and most English subjects still thought of the force loan as an emergency measure, a placeholder to keep the kingdom afloat until a more harmonious parliament could meet sometime in the near future. But the war over the force loan wasn't over yet, and will encounter more swings and momentum in two episodes' time. 
In practical terms, the collection of the first loan displayed the early modern volunteer bureaucracy in all its glory. The Privy Council had worked tirelessly to threaten and cajole the project along. This was a deeply personal process, with local connections and local knowledge playing a key role in bypassing resistance and reinforcing success. With limited scope for coercion, collectors navigated treacherous waters. Without some kind of cudgel, compliance was unlikely. But that cudgel, whether in the form of sending off men to the Privy Council or other forms of punishment, could only be used sparingly. Knowing when bluffs would intimidate and when they would be called was a necessary talent. While the project was a success, by the summer of 1627 the Crown had collected £240,000, enough money to embark on a major military operation, the force loan demonstrated the limits of this kind of informal administration. The central government could not demand the obedience of its subjects, but rather had to negotiate, sometimes painstakingly, their cooperation. The results were somewhat ambiguous. Could Charles survive permanently on this kind of revenue? Was this evidence that the king had scored an ideological victory over the necessity of Parliament? Or had his subjects merely given him the benefit of the doubt for this one crisis? We'll have to wait two weeks to answer those questions, because next time we'll have to tackle the military campaign the force loan helped to fund. I've been deliberately vague about this campaign because there's a scintillating plot twist. England would not be raiding the Spanish coast, helping the Dutch, or landing troops in Germany. No, Charles sent Buckingham to strike at a new enemy, the French. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.